Hey, it's Emma, and I'm on day 9 million of getting enough sleep and being tired as shit. Existence is making me tired again. Hi, my name is Jolie, and my life has been pure chaos, mm-hmm. but I am back, Woo-hoo. and I am ready to bore some people with information that they don't want, didn't ask for, and cannot use. We're back. Bryce would get so annoyed with me because I'll be like, I just have one more thing that I have to say. And he'll be like, okay. Eight minutes later, I'll be like, okay, but I know that I said last time was one more thing, but like this time, (laughs) this is my last thing that I have to say to you about (laughs) Muzak. Could we actually uh, go over my notes together? (laughs) (laughs) I know you like to listen to this or I hope you like to listen to this, but like, do you want to listen to it twice? (laughs) Do you want to listen to my like super excitable version where like I have absolutely I'm saying things completely out of context and then listen to the version where like I lead you into it like it's a normal like person. A, it's like behind the scenes. The primary reason for us starting this was that for me, at least people got tired of me just spouting off random shit to them. Where they're like, oh, OK, <laughs> cool. Thanks for sharing. You're, but, you're uh, lucky you're pretty. Nobody has ever said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I say that to other people. Nobody (laughs) says that to me. They're just like, "Mm, you've got a good personality. Mm. Got a real, real good personality. No, you're a true beauty. You look so cute today too. Like Uh 90s. Yeah. Break dancer vibe. I'm wearing like my fancy Adidas like jacket with all the the cool illustrations that Oh both. yeah. We got that together. Didn't Benny didn't Benny get one of those too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wear it and Bryson always looks at me and he's like, "Well, that's loud." I'm like, "Well, yeah. It sure is." <laughs> it's only really loud like on the back. <laughs> yeah, it's only super loud on the back, but I feel like because the back is so loud, you sense its presence <laughs> no matter where you are. <laughs> And really sensing something's presence, no matter where you are, I was I was kind of thinking about how much music just permeates our life. Oh, yeah. I so rarely have complete silence that when I have it, sometimes it confuses me. Yeah. Have you done a sensory deprivation tank? No, but I have been told several times that I need to. Yeah. That I would love it. I've never done it either, but I'm scared because of the silence. So for me, it's like every once in a while, I will want complete silence and then I'll go for like an hour without hearing anything. But then everything seems so loud when it starts back (laughs) up (laughs) that I'm like, how did people exist in the 1700s when there wasn't just like constant fucking noise? Right. It's a little bit scary how much we rely on it. Oh, for sure. Part of what made me interested in music as like a concept was the Christopher Case thing that we did for our first episode back on season two. If you haven't listened to it, I'm plugging it right now. You should listen to it because it's a good story. (laughs) And I do actually have a quote from him in this one, but the Christopher Case, like he was a Muzak executive or program director. That got me interested in it because I was like, I don't know anything about Muzak except for that it's Muzak. Yeah. Yeah, same. <laughs> it's like this this thing that has always existed in my life, but I have no idea like why it started or like what the point of it was other than to just like gently lull us into submission. Yeah, it's like a space filler. So it was the Christopher Case thing. And then it was also just the idea of like, we don't have silence anymore. Really? Well, I live right by the highway too. So there's like the constant lulling of cars driving by. Oh my God. And it's it's useful when it comes to like sleeping. Like I need to have white noise, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, if it was 500 years ago, I would not be able to handle myself. (laughs) I wouldn't be able to sleep because I need my fan. (laughs) <laughs> like I would have to, I would have to hire a series of people to like gently fan me with like a big palm frond or I'm sure that they had some sort of like cooling off system, but Maybe I don't know it, what like, it was. It has like a, a crank on the back that you like crank and make the fan go. I would not cut it in a completely silent world. I don't think I would either. Do you listen to like ambient music when you're doing stuff? Mm, I, listen, I prefer to listen to podcasts actually while I'm doing things. I mean, I like to listen to music too. 
Yeah. Sometimes though I do live in quiet, but like there's house sounds, you know? Yeah. There's always something going on when you have kids. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another part of like what makes me so comfortable with like just having hours of silence at times is that I am constantly hearing something. And having to pay attention to something. I know. So it's nice when it's just like, I'm just sitting down and nothing is happening at all. I know. Those <laughs> moments are so rare and so fantastic. It's not like someone running through the house for no goddamn reason saying my name, mom. <laughs> like, why do you have to introduce yourself like that? I know, Can you right? not just walk to my room like a person and then ask me whatever Knock you're going to ask gently, me? Like, good morning, mother. That's a psychopath <laughs> right there. That's a person you don't want living in your home. Good morning, mother. May I speak to you for a second? Ew, that's like in that movie, Vivarium. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so glad you finally watched that I because I have so many thoughts about it. The minute I heard the uh, the way that the kid talked, I was like, ew, ew. I know. <laughs> no. I know. You don't do it. So Yucky. Freaky. Interesting yeah. movie. Kids who talk like little adults to a weird degree always creep me out. Oh, yeah. Like, same. you got to have at least like a little baby accent or something. Well, that's like Village of the Damned, right? Like, they're all like super proper and like very white, <sighs> scary kids. Because my kid talks like an adult sometimes, but she still has like the little kid voice. Well, and she's like goofy too. Every once in a while, she'll ask me a question like that. And I'm like, ew. Who made you? <laughs> gross. Get out of here. You're gross. How has your evening been, mother? I'm genuinely interested in how your life is. Ew, get the fuck out of here. Did you watch um, The Haunting of Hill House? Or no, The Haunting of Eli Manor? Was it Eli or Bly? Bly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Haunting of Bly Manor. It um, has letters in it. It's about the same. Yeah, whatever. Same, <laughs> same shit. L-Y. <laughs> but how the little girl's like, perfectly splendid. Oh my God, that was so creepy. Yeah. I didn't like it as much as I liked the other one. I didn't actually watch Haunting of Hill House. I like started <gasps> to, but it was right after I finished The Haunting of Bly Manor. And oh. I'm like, eh, like I kind of just watched this. Oh, it's a lot different. Really? The last episode is bullshit, but the first episode, specifically the the bent neck lady is really fucking good. Oh, so that one is, it's a different story every episode? It's a different story every season but you see it from like multiple perspectives in the first okay. season. So okay. you, it's like a, a group of siblings and you see each one's like experience. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I did like Haunting of Fly Manor, but it was very slow. It was incredibly slow. And I think people didn't like it because they were, they were used to kind of the feeling of Haunting of Hill House, which was entirely different. I'll have so. to check it out. It's genuinely so much more creepy. Ooh, see, yeah, because the Bly Manor one was just like kind of scary. It was more like... It was like, a little scary, but it was more like there's a couple of scenes where you're like, ooh, no. Uh-huh. It's not like, oh. Yeah. No, I don't like any of this. It wasn't the best, but I definitely stuck around for the whole thing. Speaking of shit in the background, holy God, Haunting of Hill House has like, if you watch it more than once all the way through, you'll see stuff in the background where you're like, no, no. <laughs> like the way that it's designed, there are ghosts fucking everywhere. I never and noticed not that stuff. fucking everywhere, but like they're just everywhere. I'll have to watch it. <laughs> Benny's good at noticing things in the background. Like, oh, did you just see that? I'm like, no, I didn't see that at all. Don't smoke before you watch it. It's not a good idea. It's not good times. <laughs> you know I'm going to. When yeah. I had to go to the hospital last week or two weeks ago or whatever, they were asking me about my cannabis consumption. I was like, it's a lifestyle. You're like, I, I have control of myself. You worry about yourself. Yeah. They're like, well, how okay. often do you use cannabis? How often don't I might be an easier, <laughs> might be an easier question <laughs> to answer. <laughs> how often do you? Are you judging me? Are you a cop? You have to tell me girl, if you're a cop. Girl, weed's legal. We can like smoke crack here now. Oh God, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to do way, that though. The way you said that was like, but oh yeah. God, yes. <laughs> I, am, I am starting light because I don't smoke weed either. So I'm going to start with weed and then I'm going to work my way up. I'm going to do that. it like a, an 80s uh, teen drug movie. <laughs> start, start with weed. And then work my way up to heroin, black tar heroin. Perfect. Yes. And by the way, I am not making fun of drug addiction at all. It is horrible. Uh, my family is, has a 
has an unfortunate issue with easily becoming drug addicted. So that's not something that I would ever like make light of. Oh, totally. Same here. But, you know. Same here. I actually think it's fantastic that our state um, legalized a bunch of drugs though, because people who are stuck in like the cycle of addiction deserve help and not to like be sent to jail. Jail is not helpful for anybody. Mm -mm. Like I just don't understand the point of it. And I have a family member right now who's going through the endless cycle of like court dates constantly getting shifted. She has to pay every single month for a lawyer who's not doing anything for her. She has to pay fees every single month because technically she hasn't been released from whatever program she's in. It's legal extortion. She gets sent back to jail if she doesn't pay all this shit, but also she can't like get a normal job and and like start to build on her life. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely stupid that people who are non-violent criminals are treated like this. I completely agree. So yay, Oregon, way to go. Hopefully it like works out well and doesn't backfire in some way. But I feel like there's always a way that something's just not going to work out perfectly, but I definitely don't think people belong in jail for having drug addictions. So I'm, I'm very glad. Mm-hmm. I hope people, I hope this makes people want to invest more in rehab and, and rehabilitation, mm-hmm. like services, like uh, housing and things like that. For sure. Because people need a break. Life is depressing. Mm-hmm. If I had the money, I might have a drug addiction. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I always used to say that people would be like, so, so did you ever get really into drugs? And I was like, no, it's poor. <laughs> Too I don't have the money for drugs. <laughs> it's true. Me? It's an expensive thing to do. And that's what's so like tragic about it is that you end up doing more and more insane shit that you would never do otherwise just to like keep up with it. Yeah. So you can get high for like a couple hours. I know. Exactly. I went through this whole thing as a young adult. Yeah. Yeah. I had a problem with prescription painkillers. Oh, man. Yeah. That's the worst. Oh, yeah, it is. You know, Was it like, like the, the heavy duty ones that, you know, people paid a lot of good money to get a lot of people addicted to? Yeah. Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it. very hard because it's like what you're saying. You just become so addicted to the drug that like you become, you're sick, you know, and you want to feel better and you're not even getting the drug to get high anymore. You're getting it so you can function and not want to die and like feel like there's ants inside of your skin. So I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and that's actually one of the things that I had to work myself off of is just painkillers because there's no cure for it. There's nothing really that they can do. So if the typical medication doesn't work for you, then it's painkillers and anti-anxiety and sleep pills and like you, you end up just being on so many prescriptions that you don't exist right. anymore. It's like, well, you feel uncomfortable. So why don't you just like be fucked up all day, every day? Right. And it doesn't even, here's the weird thing about it. It doesn't fix your pain. Mm-mm. You're still in pain. You just like don't care. You just care. don't care. Yeah. <laughs> people always think like, oh, well, people just don't want to be in pain. They just need to do yoga. It's like, no, you're still in pain. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that you don't actually give a shit anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing that people get addicted to is that feeling of like, oh, this doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Oh, yeah. 100%. So I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad that people are not going to be penalized for something like that because it's just, it's life is hard enough, I think. Yeah. I agree. There's no reason for anything to get any harder. Yeah. The other thing that passed that I feel really excited about is universal preschool. Hooray. Fuck yeah. Yeah, I'm happy about Fuck that. yeah. If there's ever school again, uh, I'll well, use it for know. the tail. <laughs> oh my God. Is there ever going to be school again? Yeah, being inside in groups <laughs> exists. At some point, I feel like this just has to go away because at some point enough either, and this is horrible to say, but either enough people will die that it just won't be an issue anymore. Part of me also thinks like, oh, this is just forever now. That's what I think too. You know, Benny was telling me that like evidently we'll be wearing masks until like 2023 or something. I like the ones where like it has a little hands thing that you can like put your hand into and scratch your nose if you need to. I haven't seen that. That's amazing. It's like a space helmet. That's amazing. Like, fuck yeah, man. I am here for it. I would wear that shit every single day, regardless. (laughs) Man, there's no more mask requirements. (laughs) I'm like, and I just. I just like it. It's just my style now. I'm just real safe. It's new, new me. <laughs> like I haven't cleaned the inside of it in about a year, but I feel very safe and it smells weird in here. It's your smell though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's get into Muzak. 
I had a whole plan here to play music during the entire thing, but I feel like that would drive me insane. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you can do it in post. Just have it on like, the whole time. <laughs> I'll probably have like the 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off, Love which that. is how Muzak did it in, in the past so that they wouldn't have uh, listener fatigue is what they called it. Interesting. Yeah. So I'll probably do that in post and you guys can just enjoy the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. And I'll I'll go through the different uh, because, you know, it, this started in the 30s. So I'll, I'll go through the different time periods of like what music sounded like in the 30s and 40s and then the 40s and 50s, 50s and 60s, 70s and 80s is like my jam. Music through the ages. But yeah, uh, you guys can hit that unsubscribe button right now and <laughs> Never hear us again <laughs> after we've made you listen to nonstop music while we while we talk. <laughs> Let's talk about the history of music. So important. It's something that everybody needs to know about. Are you ready? I'm so ready. So I have a quote here, and this is by John Cage. And I actually don't know who that is. I think it might be. <laughs> I should have probably looked that up. Hold on. This is a quote from John Cage, my next door neighbor. This is a quote from Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Yeah, he was a composer. Okay, I figured it was a composer, but I didn't want to say that and then be entirely wrong. <laughs> this is from John Cage from my sophomore English class. <laughs> he said, in Zen they say, if something is boring after two minutes, try it for four. If it's still boring, then eight, then 16, then 32. Eventually one discovers that it is not boring at all. And that is like the whole premise of hmm. what I think music represents. It does start off as like, oh, okay, well, this is music. <laughs> and then you kind of, <laughs> this, there's one thing that I know for sure, and, and it is that this is music. I am listening to music right now. And then it kind of morphs into like, oh, I'm getting real fucking annoyed by this. And then like I noticed because I listened to a lot of music while I was compiling all of this research, I noticed that after a while I was like, oh, this is actually kind of like relaxing. Like I'm kind of getting into it. Right. <laughs> so I feel like it kind of lulls you into a sense of like, yeah, I'm listening to music. And then your brain is like, but no, but no, though, it's not. It's like a manufactured version of music. And then you're like, nah, it's all right. It's music. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the guy who created music, George Owen Square. And I am going to probably mispronounce his last name quite a bit because it is spelled the same as Squire but it is not pronounced that way. It's just square. It's square. Okay. He said that it was pronounced that way, but I feel like maybe he's wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> Major General George Owens Square was born in 1865 in Dryden, Michigan. And he graduated from the Military Academy in 1887 and received his PhD from John Hopkins University in 1893. He was primarily like an inventor that also had like a side hustle of being a soldier. <laughs> and his side hustle was like, it took up the majority of his time. But he was like <laughs> mainly interested in radios and like communications and electricity. That was his thing. Is that what so, he did while he was in the military? So he fought in World War One, and he apparently was involved in the U.S. Signal Corps, which is kind of a... I'm kind of confused by like how all of this progressed because this was before aviation that he was in the military. Hmm. So he was in the military and then I think he got involved in the U.S. Signal Corps, but that was an early ancestor of the U.S. Air Force. So I'm kind of confused huh. as to whether or not that came first and then it kind of morphed into the Air Force or if it was like its own thing. And I, you know, I could have looked that up. But I didn't. But you didn't. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> Here's my uh, poorly researched military history. <laughs> it kind of seems like he had a lot to do with communications in general. So obviously, like uh, any major general or anyone who ends up being a major general is probably going to have seen some fight. And he for sure did that. But in general, he was interested in communications and in figuring out ways to get information to people. One of the really interesting things that he did was figure out how to pick up telephone signals through a living tree. Whoa. It's weird. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so he called it tree telephony. Very on the nose, uh -huh. but whatever. <laughs> 
A 1914 report in the Scientific American talked about how Squire had been able to pick up a broadcast from Germany while in the woods in Washington, D.C., and he basically used a tree as an antenna. And he said that it had to be a living tree and one at full foliage was best. So huh. he was just like, yeah, I'm just going to figure out how to, you know, get information everywhere. And then he also had a way to deliver music over electrical lines, which is kind of the precursor to music. He essentially made it so that he could get people to pay a subscription fee and then music would be piped in directly from their uh, electric company hmm. and they would be able to use it like however much they wanted. The first customers of Wired Radio Incorporated were in the Lakeland section of Cleveland, Ohio, and they paid $1.50 a month for three channels of audio entertainment. And it was everything from music to news but it was just three channels. And like I said, radio was coming up strong. This was not gonna last long. And I think everybody at his company kind of knew that. So they were looking to the future to figure out ways of making it more of a commercial interest instead of like mm -hmm. a home to home. One thing that was good about the wired radio was that it had better fidelity than a radio broadcast, traditional radio broadcasts at the time. So that actually made it kind of more reliable for a while. But like I said, radio was becoming a thing. Were there already elevators then? We're going to get into that. Okay. <laughs> In 1934, George Square, Square, decided to change <laughs> the name of the company from Wired Radio to Muzak. And it's just a combination of the Greek word muse. And he really liked the idea of having the suffix ak, kind of like Kodak and having kind of a nonsensical word be huh. a brand name. So he Wait, created- Wait, wasn't music already a word? Music is a word, but Muzak is like a nonsensical word. Yeah, it's just kind of funny to be like, I called it Muzak for like these, all these reasons. Like not just like, it sounds like music, but it's different. <laughs> <laughs> I think he just liked the kind of futuristic, like, oh, Kodak, it sounds so, like, modern and new. <laughs> like, we think of Kodak and we think of, like... Disposable old, cameras. Like, old disposable cameras. But uh -huh. at this point, it was like this, the new thing was to call it, like, Kodak. I'm going with it. It's fine. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. So he changed the name in 1934, but then he, like, pretty shortly thereafter died. So in 1934, mm. he died, and that was about a decade before music became like the fucking thing. It was essentially bought out pretty quickly thereafter by Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers had it for, I think, about 10 years, and that's kind of when it gained more popularity. That's when it became like a mind control technique. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a little bit after that. It was like in the, the 50s and 60s that they started like, all the not like- Not quite yet weird mind control shit. What kind of set Muzak apart was the drive to kind of make it a more commercial thing. So they had it going in factories during wartime efforts. They had it going on in office buildings and retail establishments. They found that it boosted the efficiency and reduced absenteeism in the workplace. That's interesting. Yeah, and there were studies at the time done that kind of confirmed this. I'm not entirely sure. Like, I didn't look up the studies because I was like, a lot of these studies and a lot of the science is just bullshit, so I'm not going to bother. But there were studies that seemed to back up the idea that it was going to be better for workers, better for bosses. There was even a study that playing classical music was better for farm animals. I mean, that's the same thing as like leaving music on for your dog or like when right. you're pregnant listening to classical music. Right. And they actually did a lot of studies around like the types of music or like what kind of beats per minute that, well, I don't know if they called it beats per minute at the time, but like how slow or fast the music had to be to mm -hmm. like get cows to produce more milk or get chickens <laughs> to lay more eggs. It's very interesting. So all of this was happening at the same time as music was being piped in. And that's kind of what drove people to really use the service. All of these scientific studies were coming out and they were like, well, fuck yeah, we want people to be good little worker bees. Let's mm -hmm. play them some music. Muzak ended up basically evolving into a franchise after Warner Brothers sold them. So people could buy franchises all across the US. And that is another thing that happened to make it like really fucking popular is that people were buying these franchises and then supplying the Muzak to local businesses. 
and how they were supplied was in like, they had these like weird boxes that had several like reels of tape and you could switch the reels essentially, depending upon what time of day it was. They would send you the reels and it would be like for a month and then you would send the reels back and get new ones. Interesting. And, yeah, it was really fascinating. And who is making this music? There's like composers that work for them or? They had their own composers. So for a while they were doing kind of like covers and like classical music and stuff like that. But then they started making their own music and that's kind of also another thing that set them apart. Yeah. And they had some really amazing composers, jazz musicians playing their nonsense music. Yeah, so a lot of people kind of got their start as musicians for Muzak. Musactions. Musactions. <laughs> it's a nonsense word. I just made it up. The United States entry into, into World War II proved to be a crucible for environmental music as the need for heightened production on nearly all industrial fronts offered the opportunity to use Muzak on a mammoth scale. Thousands of factories, arsenals, and shipyards were wired for music during the war. And evidence suggests that the production increased 11% at facilities playing hits such as Victory Polka, Deep in the Heart of Texas, and Swinging on a Star. But, 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 Deep in the Heart of Texas, they ended up taking off because people stopped. What? Do you know that song? They just all started dancing? Uh, the stars at night are big and bright. So that makes uh, people stop and everyone uh -huh. was clapping. So they ended up taking out Deep in the Heart of Texas. That is so funny. Isn't that You're hilarious? enjoying yourself too much. Yeah, like you're... When you stop working to do something, that's when we have an issue. What nerds like that everybody's stopping in class? <laughs> I mean, so it's it's like that with the, the Friends theme too. You hear it and you're like... It's true, yeah. Clapping is mind control. But yeah, so <laughs> they figured out pretty quickly that you couldn't have lyrics because people would start singing along and enjoying themselves mm -hmm. too much and you couldn't have clapping. It couldn't be too fast and it couldn't be too slow. There was an art form to it. I'm not going to say mm -hmm. science because it wasn't a fucking science. Okay, so you asked about elevator music. Mm -hmm. Around the time that Muzak started, elevators were becoming more popular because high-rise buildings were being mm -hmm. created and, and more and more skyscrapers essentially were being created. People don't like elevators. I fucking hate elevators. I hate elevators to the point that one time I had an interview in an elevator, or not in an elevator, in a sky... <laughs> I had an interview in a skyscraper building in downtown Chicago, and the elevator had a clear glass window where you could overlook the skyline. And I had to crawl out of the elevator because like, as we went up, I was just getting lower and lower to the ground. Oh People were like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, yes, just please don't look at me. Oh my God. Oh my God. So you're scared of height. I'm terrified of heights. I fucking hate heights. I don't like them. I, I think everybody has like an irrational fear that just sticks with them. Oh, yeah. And mine is getting stuck in an elevator and having to go to the bathroom. I feel like that's a natural thing. Because at like what moment is too long? You know, at what moment are, do you decide to pee on the ground? <laughs> if it's 30 minutes in, people are going to be real angry at you. Even if you're like, I had to pee when I got on the elevator. Right? It's like you wait like three hours and the second you pee on the ground, they let you out. Damn it. So for me, it's anything involving heights. Like I am not afraid of airplanes. I'm afraid of being up high. And mm. I'm afraid of the idea of surviving a plane crash. Yeah, so my stepmom, not anymore because she's a chaplain, but she used to be an aviation lawyer. And I have a memory of like going to her work and getting to listen to part of a black box recording from a American oh Airlines flight. That, you know, that, yeah, like Why? I don't think I should have heard that. That's a special thing to have to have an understanding of as a young child. Right, I know. <laughs> was it like terrifying or? Honestly, I don't remember because it's one of those memories where it's like, have I fabricated part of this story at this point? Like, were they talking right. about the black box and asked me to leave? Was I in there and heard it? Right. You know, you know what I mean? And was it just like basic shit like 10-4, we are about to, oh, something's happening. Right, and like 11-year-old <laughs> me is like, oh my God. Oh my Top God. Top secret info. <laughs> Yeah, like you're you're creating drama where it doesn't really exist because yeah. it's just like so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so I I am definitely really terrified of heights and I can understand why people didn't like the idea of being in an elevator. It's yeah. a death box. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that elevators are technically about as safe as as you can get. However, I feel like at the time they couldn't have been that safe. Have you ever ridden in a really old elevator where you'd have to like pull the gate? It yeah. feels like you are asking for it. Oh, You're just yeah. asking to die, especially when it goes. 
Like, Ugh. oh, so these wires are going to break and I'm going to fall to my death. This is so why I'm dying. I know now. <laughs> <laughs> I can see where people would kind of need something to chill them out. And that's where the concept of elevator music came from, is that they would pipe in like calm, relaxing music into the elevators to keep people from losing their fucking minds. For sure. But Muzak was never a part of this. They didn't involve oh. themselves in the production of any of that. Interesting. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting because music and elevator music are considered essentially the same thing. But basically what they're describing is just calming music Mm. that is like suitably bland. You can ignore it, but it has like a a hypnotic effect on the Mm -hmm. listener. That's your elevator music trivia. Okay, so let's talk about, I labeled this one fitter, happier, more productive. This is essentially a a super short history on background music as a concept because it didn't start with music. It had already existed. And about their stimulus progression, which was their very special thing that music came up with due to like whatever science they pretended to have. (laughs) (laughs) And also just how like background music became such a prevalent part of our society in general. So I have a quote here. You can just find the name and record yourself saying it. And every time you say it, like edit it in there. Okay, so this is a quote from, I believe, Robbins Landon. Music sufficiently old to be respectable and sufficiently boring not to need listening to. That is a perfect way of summing up what music, elevator music, background music is. Mm -hmm. It can't be too out there. Can't have lyrics. It has to have just the right instrumentals to be listenable without drawing your attention to it. And to be fair, the composers who worked on this shit were great at what they did. They did have it down to a science. They were like, okay, if we do too much, if we do past this amount, then it's going to be more music than music. Mm -hmm. Reel it in, boys. Bring it down a notch. Mm -hmm. Don't get too excitable. Uh, So there were a couple of different kinds and there were covers and there were originals. So the covers essentially just replaced, like everybody has heard music covers probably. If you have ever been on hold on a telephone, they still play them. Uh (laughs) So it's essentially just replacing the vocals with instrumentals. And it always sounds cheesy but that's just the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And then the original compositions tended to be like jazzy or like what you could consider easy listening. Kenny G? Yeah, so Kenny G is like a great example of easy listening. And he wasn't technically like a music musician, I don't believe, but that's essentially what you'd be getting yourself into if you're thinking about like background music Mm -hmm. without vocals. It's like a, a Kenny G situation. Smooth jazz. Exactly. Very smooth jazz. Mood jazz, easy listening. You can also call it mood music, kind of along with creating like the background music or like the music, the stimulating but ignorable music. Mood music was another thing that happened. And this was essentially the same thing as what they were doing in major corporations and companies and office buildings, but for the the homeowner. So they would get like Mm. a series of LPs essentially, or like sometimes it was vinyl, sometimes it was like reel to reel. And they would get like a subscription. So, you know, you'd get 16 hours and you'd have a special box that you put in all the LPs or the reel-to-reels and they would switch through based on the mood. One of your moods might be like, ooh, I'm looking to get romantic. One of them might be like, I'm having a dinner party. And essentially it would just repeat and shuffle in different orders. This was the kind of creation of mood music or ambient music for homes. At this point, people were um, still receiving essentially subscription packages from music creation companies, but it was kind of expanding. So it wasn't just Muzak providing it. It was a lot of different companies, but like all of it became lumped into the same general title of Muzak. I mean, that's like Xerox or Kleenex. It's funny that you said that because yes, that is exactly yeah. what happened. It's like the <laughs> the idea that there is like a Xerox brand something or another, and then there's Xerox, like you're Xeroxing something. Mm-hmm. So music in general is both a company name and like a style of music. This was becoming really, really popular. The idea that you could have music at all times mm-hmm. for every mood. So there's this quote in the liner notes of Velvet by the Frank Choxfield Orchestra. The musically aware hostess no longer allows the butler or her husband to sling records on the turntable in a haphazard way. She now supplies a ready-made background of elegant and suitable music to smooth the evening into one long feast of pleasure. 
and unshattered nerds. I get it though. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, that's totally what I do too. Like sometimes I'll play the whole like, yeah, we're going to listen to like all of my favorites from, you know, the 90s or like I'm going to introduce you to the chameleons today, Ripley, and I'll like name out songs that I want Google to play for me. But in general, it is just me being like, I just want to listen to stuff I can ignore. Uh Uh-huh. Totally. (laughs) Well, and there's playlists and stuff on Spotify like that. Evening Relax or... Absolutely. We're going to get into this a little bit later, but like Mm lo-fi. Lo-fi is 100% music. Totally. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) We talked about how music had its own orchestras and composers and all of that. They would create 15-minute segments. So you'd have 15 minutes on, 15 minutes of listening to music if you were like in an office building or in if you were working in a factory. 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off. Because they figured out if you played music like this all day with no breaks, people would get enraged. Wow. (laughs) And their productivity would go down. Yeah, it's like brain fatigue or whatever. Exactly. So they called it listener fatigue. Giving them like 15 minute breaks allowed the music to be novel again. Mm -hmm. So it would essentially be like kind of calm and relaxing in the morning. And then toward like the midday slump, it would get more bombastic and it would be more like brassy, like marches and things of that nature. And there were different stimulus progressions based on if it was like an office building, if it was retail, if it was a restaurant, if it was a factory. Everything had their own. It's like having a score for your life. Yeah, it totally is. I mean, it was all based around the idea that you could make people more productive or you could make people shop more. Mm -hmm. All of that. A little lot of bit manipulative, but you know, whatever. They figured it out. It worked. Mm -hmm. What I think is really cool is as early as 1935, Muzak was using red vinyl discs running at 33 and a third RPM. So they were essentially the inventors of the LP. Wow. It's like a secondary thing that they're just like, yeah, we just needed to do it. That's interesting. That's cool. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome, world. And they basically called it pleasant functional music. It was their idea to just make it like, hey, let's let's make some little worker bees. I like this. I don't know. I'm for it. In the 2006 book, Music and Manipulation on the Social Uses and Social Control of Music by Stephen Brown and Ulrich Volkston, there's an entire chapter that explores the use of music in business environments. So a 1996 study found that in a grocery store, music didn't have, didn't make people want to buy more, but they bought things faster. Classical Hmm. music made people want to buy more wine. <laughs> but it also made people feel like, you know, time was standing still. If you played French music, people bought more French wine. The music that you listen to actually does have a pretty big effect on your your purchasing, but not in the way that people think. There is some evidence Muzak was doing some well, they said that they weren't doing it. Some people suggested that they did. It could have very well been individual businesses doing it. But Mm. there is some evidence that there were subliminal messages being played underneath things. Like, I do not. Like in Josie and the Pussycats? What? Oh my God. Have you never seen that movie? It's so good. Is it the new one? No. Well, I mean, with Rachel Lee Cook. I watched Josie and the Pussycats when I was little, like the cartoon. You should watch it. You'll like it. It's campy. Parker Posey's Mm. in it. But basically, like Josie and the Pussycats, it's famous. And then Josie, like, realizes, like, she turns into this, like, big monster bitch. (laughs) And like super like self-absorbed, but there's like subliminal messages under their music to like get them to be popular. What? But then also like Josie has her own tracks that like make her hate her band. Oh my God. It's really good. You should watch it. That sounds awesome. I'll watch it with my kid. Yeah. I, you I like always say my kid, like you've never met her. <laughs> I didn't know you had a daughter. Interesting. Me too. <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> we should get them together sometime. But yeah, so it it does affect the way that you do things. But there were some grocery stores that were playing subliminal messages like, you do not want to steal. Ah. You will pay for your items today. Which sounds not that bad because you're like, well, yeah, the idea is to have people pay. <laughs> yeah, that's what shopping is. It's also like real fucked up to play subliminal messages to people while they're mm-hmm. in your store. 
you can't say yes or no to that. And really, Mm -hmm. you can't say yes or no to background music at all anymore. Yeah, that's true. We talked about stimulus progression. We talked about how um, the industrial revolution essentially and music went hand in hand and just like creating really efficient workers. One of the articles that I read, I want to say it was from the 70s. So not exactly industrial revolution, but the name of the article was workers work and bosses smile. And that's kind of like the whole idea of music. So I wanted to talk also about like some of the other weird uses of music. Music was used in the White House during the 1953 Dwight Eisenhower administration. It was it was actually wired into the White House and Dwight Eisenhower actually didn't like it. He was not a fan. However, it was a thing from then on. And apparently if you call the White House now, like, you know, you can just call the White House I actually have no idea like what happens if you call. (laughs) I need to talk to somebody real quick. Can you please? If you call the the White House now, you you get hold music. You essentially get like music, which makes sense to me. But in a way, like before music, that wouldn't have made sense. So it's like this has become such a natural thing to us that we're just like, well, yeah, of course I get hold music. Dwight Eisenhower did not like it. Linda Johnson actually had one of the franchise locations in Austin, but that was during the 1950s. During the height of music, which was like the 60s and 70s, and that's like coincidentally when easy listening kind of started to come about, music was like fucking everywhere in our government. So it was played on the launch of Apollo 11. And if you think about music being played in like an amazing and dramatic scene of Apollo 11 launching, you're just like, wow, this is weird. This is very <laughs> anticlimactic. Like instead of some yeah. like amazing orchestra, like da, da. Yeah. I get it being piped in though to like the- um, The cockpit. The ca- Yeah, to the cockpit. Cause everyone's like, oh shit, we're going into space. Right. And that's exactly what happened. So that was their soundtrack is some like easy listening. <laughs> Keep it together, boys. Apparently, John F. Kennedy really enjoyed um, listening to music during stressful times and and especially like when he had to fly places. So he was a big fan. I wish I could do a uh, a Kennedy accent because I think it would be hilarious to... You know, I do bad impressions. I do too. It makes me really uncomfortable with myself. <laughs> <laughs> there is a guy who wrote a whole book on elevator music, music, all of that shit. His name is Joseph Lanza. And I got a lot of my information from his book, by the way. He said it was used in the distant early warning places up in the north where they would watch for Soviet mischief on radar and they needed to be alert. So the music, really, it didn't put people to sleep so much as it just relaxed them, yet kept them alert. After a while, after the 60s and 70s, the notion of like background music became less of a thing and people started leaning more toward like what they considered curated or like mood music. Mm-hmm. So. Companies like Yesco began curating foreground music, which is essentially just like, hey, here's a collection of music to make shoppers want to do this. And it was actual like licensed music. Yesco actually ended up, I think, buying out music at one point, I want to say in the 80s. But the music that we know and somewhat love kind of wasn't very popular after a while. So in the late 80s, early 90s, things started to kind of transition to be more like curated playlists instead of like pop music and stuff yeah yeah just like popular music or like world music things of that nature but yeah it was still kind of based off the idea of stimulus progression in a way because Mm -hmm. they were still like setting up specific playlists for times of day it was not them making easy listening it was them curating a list of already made music so music's engineers restyled themselves as audio architects creating sonic atmospherics. I love that. Audio architecture. That's actually the name of a album by this like drum and bass producer from like the 90s or something that I like. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. Yeah, so now I wanted to talk about the evil spawn of music, which is industrial music, but also ambient music in general. Pretty much all ambient music was, uh, well, ambient music the way that we think of it today, which is music to still be enjoyed and listened to, but also ignored if you want to. It can Mm -hmm. be background music, but it can also be foreground music. That was essentially created by Brian Eno. 
he listened to music and he was like, this is bullshit. (laughs) I want music that is still like beautiful that I can choose to listen to, but that I I can also ignore and use as ambiance if I want to. So he actually started creating his like electronic music Mm -hmm. for that purpose, just as a reaction to like music being awful to listen to in his opinion. Um, that being said, there were a lot of people who really like easy listening and I'm not I'm not taking anything away from that. Like, I fucking love the Carpenters. I like some easy listening. Yeah. Like I said, I, I was listening to music while compiling this research and I found myself enjoying some of it. Like, I fucking love Bossa Nova music, man. It's good. <laughs> and you're being so productive. Exactly. I'm being so productive. I'm getting so much done, but like, I'm listening to music too. Vibing. <laughs> I'm totally vibing. <laughs> I have a quote here by Robbins Landon. Please leave your message for Robbins Landon. (laughs) (laughs) So this was found in the book, Repeating Ourselves, American Minimal Music as Cultural Practice by Robert Fink. For me, the essential distinction that needs to be made is one between the active experience of listening and making discriminations and the passive experience of hearing indiscriminately. I must say that I've had the thrilling and rare experience this morning of being certain about something. I am certain that Muzak is the single most reprehensible and destructive phenomenon in the history of music. Wow. (laughs) Right? Holy shit. Yeah, it's a big statement. Precisely because it conditions the lack of discrimination, the lack of listening, and faith of the passive acceptance of hearing. And I think that's an interesting thing to think of. Like, I think it's a mm-hmm. little uh, hyperbolic. Right, that's like a, a thesis paper. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I can, I can see where if all you had access to was music, you wouldn't be able to hear music and understand it, like, yeah, intellectually. I mean, but how different is that than, like, listening to Top 40 radio? That's a very good point, because something that happened after the creation of music is things became more formulaic, because mm-hmm. there is, like, a very specific pattern of noises and a specific, like, beats per minute that affects us in different ways. And that's why so many fucking pop producers are creating amazing music that is really fucking catchy, because oh, yeah. they figured out the formula and they just do it yeah, over like and over and over. Hit science or whatever. Yeah. Like I love Blackpink. I love Blackpink. Yeah, I think you're they're a big fucking fan. great. However, it is very formulaic. They mm-hmm. have it down. You can't deny how well produced it is. You can't deny how catchy it is. But it's not that it's not creative in different ways, but it's like there is already a pattern there that you just plug and play, you mm-hmm. know? To some degree, it is because we're humans. That's a thing. Like there are going to be patterns that are more pleasing to us than other patterns. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense to capitalize on that if you're creating something that you intend to make money on. Totally. You're not just like, this sounds awful, putting (laughs) it out there. I really like to make people think. (laughs) But people who think don't pay me. (laughs) So instead, I'm I'm selling out. I'm going to sell out. I would love the opportunity to sell out. I would love it. (laughs) Give me. Right when people are like, I liked the old albums better. I can't believe what sellouts they are now. And it's like, you know, I'm sorry, like Indie Steve or whatever, but like... (laughs) Indie Steve? (laughs) I don't know. It's the first thing that came to my head. Indie Mark or who cares? Whatever. It's just like, sure, making music is great, but it's like, can you be mad at your favorite band for like... Right. Getting on the radio, to be like successful. trying to make money. As an entertainer, I can see where it's like, but my idea is to entertain people. Like that's something that I enjoy. Totally. And like you want to make a living. Exactly. And there are a lot of musicians who don't enjoy entertaining. Oh, for sure. And you, you know, there's tell. nothing wrong with that either. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. And they still make good music, but it's like they're not going to compromise on anything to entertain because it's not their priority. Totally. Whereas, and maybe the money is not their priority either. I just think exactly. it's funny to get mad at like your favorite band that like they're famous now. I think like sometimes the money does get to people in that they start doing like making choices that you can tell are not at all about their music but are entirely dictated by record companies or management. In which case, I'm just like, man, that's real sad. It's real sad that you don't have a choice anymore. But sometimes it's like you just have to pay your bills. Like there's a reason, you know, comedians start doing Dr. Doolittle. It's not because they're not funny anymore. Exactly. Life gets real fucking expensive real fast when you're Mm -hmm. famous. So like I can I can understand making some sacrifices. You know what I'm saying? So I have a really funny story because I was I was telling you that Muzak is uh, also directly responsible for industrial music. 
Mm-hmm. And that's for like a lot of reasons, not just because of Muzak, but because of like the whole idea of industrialization and anti-individualistic uh, campaigning of government and corporations and all of that shit. A lot of the people that pushed in the the beat era, the beat poet era, were heavily inspirational to people who started the industrial movement. So William Burroughs is one of them. He did such a fucking asshole trolley thing of <laughs> he went to this cafe and they were apparently playing like shitty music and he was just sitting there like seething, listening to the shitty music. So he came back the next day and he brought a recording device and he recorded like hours of this music that they were playing along with like all of the ambient noise of the cafe. And then the next day, he came back and played it at top volume until like, they asked him to leave. <laughs> <laughs> like on top of what they were playing in, this, yeah. in the shop. He was oh just God. like, listen to what you're doing. That actually inspired the kind of like noise terrorism idea of yeah. industrial music. And there's like a lot of things in there. Dude, that is like so extra troll. It's not like he had a cell phone to record it on. You know, he didn't he like have his Apple phone. He had to bring a device yeah, like this is like a <laughs> lot of work. Yeah, so that kind of stuff inspired industrial music, which they were the one of the first people to publicly, besides another case that I'm going to talk about, to publicly announce like subliminal messaging as a a thing that was happening in music. Wow. And yeah, so there's this movie called Decoder. Yeah, it sounds familiar, but I don't think I've seen it. It's like a sci-fi kind of like 80s movie. But the whole concept of it is that these background music places are, you know, giving people subliminal messaging. Mm. And that is something that actually was a deep concern for people in the 50s and 60s. In the 50s and 60s were like the, the growing up period of people who would later be in the 80s you know, making their industrial music. So all of that like subliminal messaging, brainwashing, all of that shit was still like a big concern for them. And they brought that into industrial music and they were directly inspired by William Burroughs so much that Burroughs actually made an appearance in Decoder. Interesting. That's so, yeah, cool. The whole idea of like sound terrorism mm-hmm. and using just noise and like grunge and calling it industrial to like, you know, overturn the idea of the industrial revolution being like a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like all of that came as a direct result of people just being like, fuck music. Wow. Not interested. And then also ambient music, like actually having pleasant and well thought out and creative ambient music came from Muzak too. So it did some good for music. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. That's something that was so like highly reviled by Mm -hmm. so many people actually created a lot of really amazing and creative art. Yeah. So I did say that people were concerned about subliminal messaging. There was one lawsuit. (laughs) It's not as interesting as it sounds because (laughs) (laughs) I know you expect it to be like there, there have been like there was subliminal messaging in uh, the MK Ultra experiments, mm-hmm. obviously, but I think that was more over like various noise. It wasn't like over music. Yeah, and I think sometimes it was just like words. Yeah, like not yeah. even hidden. Yeah, it was just like them repeating a mm-hmm. sentence. So there was that, but there's no evidence that music was used for it. Except like the supermarket thing you said, right? Yeah, but that was, again, you, you can't prove that music was involved in that. That mm, seems right, to be right. like people using music and then doing their own thing, their own shady shit on top of it. In Washington, D.C., the transit system contracted music to supply its vehicles in 1948. And people were fucking furious. They were so mad. Because they, they were it, doing what? They were just supplying music to the the various, like any trains or buses oh, or okay, anything. Yeah. So all of the places that they had to use to get places had music going all the fucking time. So finally, the people like the writers essentially said, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> and they filed a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Just them saying this is subliminal messaging and we fucking hate it. No, because the idea was that like the music was manipulating you regardless of whether or not it had like an underlying message. Totally. Like, what if I don't want to be calm? I want to be real angry (laughs) on my way to work. It's the only thing that gets me through. Right. (laughs) I don't have Adderall yet. 
<laughs> no, I have the best Adderall yet. <laughs> they just had like speed then, right? Yeah, like I know. They just had like straight out speed. Just amphetamines. <laughs> my mom told me so. My grandpa started taking whatever, like doxy, whatever. What is it called? Like speed from like the 50s. I guess like my my grandma got it. My bubby was prescribed it by a doctor. And then <gasps> my grandpa took it. And he's a chemist and he ended up like making it for himself. And my mom said that he was taking it until the day he died and it like made him very edgy. So what you're telling me is your grandpa made meth. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> basically, that's yeah. Hilarious. My mom told me that story. She's like, I think that's what made him so aggravated all the time. Like, well, yeah, that'll that do makes, it. That makes sense to me. That's kind of hilarious. <laughs> oh, the things I would make if I were a chemist. <laughs> I would make all sorts of meth. All right, so uh, it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the court ruled in 1951 that the Constitution did not guarantee a passenger on a federally regulated vehicle a right to privacy substantially equal to the privacy to which he is entitled in his own home. So basically, they're just saying, we're going to play whatever the fuck we want. I get it because that would have been like if they had ruled in their favor, that would open the door to a lot of different types of lawsuits. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just like, well, like, what if I don't want to wear my socks on the train or, you know, stupid stuff like that. I, I don't think you have to wear socks on a train, but. Well, what's like something that like you like, what, what was the ruling? Like the train doesn't you're not owed the same type of privacy. Yeah. So like, I don't want the cameras to be on in the train. It's like, well, the cameras are there to protect more than just you, sir. So nobody cares what you want. Totally. So that could have like messed it up for that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. I can totally see that for sure. So I did have a quote that I found from Christopher Case, our dearly departed Christopher Case, who died by witch, unfortunately. It's so funny saying died by witch. I'm like, well, like he like died in his bathtub, like flipping out. He died by witch. <laughs> Cause of death, witch. Just witch. Witchcraft. Spooks. <laughs> Spookies. <Scaries>. The spookies. <laughs> <laughs> He defined Muzak as music artfully performed in a manner to uplift, not intrude. And he was actually pretty put off by the idea of people thinking of the music as like bland or manipulative. And I can kind of see that because like all music is a little bit manipulative. Yeah. I feel like if you are listening or um, viewing art in any way, you're being manipulated to some degree. And oh, that absolutely. Is the point there of needs it. to be some sort of response and like a desired response. Exactly. Exactly. That's like putting on house music and being like angry that you feel like dancing. <laughs> this 4 4 beat is controlling my mind. I'm always angry that I feel like dancing. <laughs> I always imagine, like, you know, the guys who go to, uh, to, who go to clubs and just stand on the sidelines and look miserable. I'm like, do you know what you came here for? Right. It's like, go somewhere else. It's like you're punishing yourself for not being able to dance. No, they're just like waiting for girls to be drunk enough for them to like walk up behind them and put their boner on them. Oh God, I fucking hate that. I screamed at people when they did that to me. I would make them right. so embarrassed that they just turn around and like walk away. Right, Get like you shouldn't go to the club with your girlfriends and have to pretend that you're all dating to like have dudes go away. I was the type of <laughs> asshole who would just turn around and go, no. Good for you. I'm always like, <laughs> oh my God, somebody, I was sitting eating pizza with my friend and we were clearly having like a really deep and like emotional conversation where we were both kind of tearing up and this guy like started to pull a chair up and I just went, no, 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 until he left. Really? He wasn't like, what's up girls? No, he was just like, <laughs> Good for you. My friend started, like, our emotional moment was over. She just started laughing hysterically. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just fucking done. I'm done with guys <laughs> doing that shit. I'm over it. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm going to talk about the, the big pivots that uh, Muzak eventually had to being mood media instead of being Muzak. So there is a a quote from the vice president of programming and licensing for Muzak at the time. And he said, and I think this was a quote from like the 90s. So he said, there are still a couple of companies out there doing that kind of old style, a thousand and one strings, ruin your favorite song kind of thing. But we dropped all that in 1987. You're known for it. <laughs> right. Too little, too late. Too little, too late. You already did your damage. So they were going on pretty hard until around the 80s. They were bought out by a Seattle-based company called Yesco Audio Environments. 
And they are the ones who actually started doing the like foreground music concepts, like kind of getting together original artists and like creating some new work, but also, you know, combining that with popular music of the time. They were still doing some instrumentals, but it was primarily going out the door for just actually having music and having like licensing for that. Something that they also started doing in the 90s was creating what they called audio branding. Anything that you think of now as a specific like audio sound for a company, I think that's kind of what they are talking about as far as audio branding is concerned. But that can also be combined with the idea of like, if you go into an Abercrombie and Fitch, they're going to have a very specific sound, right? Totally. And they're probably going to sell an album to go with that sound. Oh yeah, Hollister did that. They were still going pretty strong through the 90s. In the early 2000s, music collapsed because of a kind of a combination of things. Uh, There were a lot of different kinds of companies doing the exact same thing and moving more toward new media versus like still providing music over tapes and shit like that. So the other issue was that things like Spotify and at the time, like Napster, like all of those like early iterations. All of the early iterations of like music sharing and like uh, streaming music platforms, all of that also kind of like dug in a grave for them. Mm -hmm. Then they had the combined effect of a failed merger. So I think they were going to merge with another company that didn't go through. So they actually ended up pretty much fully collapsing. But now mood media is like the thing. And that I believe is still a company. Muzak, Hmm. not so much. Mood media, yes. And there are other companies that provide like background music, but it's just not really all that much of a thing anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's irrelevant now. Yeah. Because like what I was saying, it's like you could be like, like sometimes Nori will be like, Alexa, play pizza music, you know, and then it'll play like... <laughs> I want to know what pizza music is. <laughs> nothing. And nothing ever happens. Benny ended up being like Italian, you know, Italian music. <laughs> <laughs> I just think of like the music that they play at Olive Garden. I'm like, oh, Dude, okay, that's pizza music. I love music. Olive Garden. I do too. No shame. Olive Garden is good. Yeah, if you're not going there for like an authentic Italian experience, you know, and you're just like, I want a huge bowl of wait, fucking wait, pasta. Wait, wait, Are you saying that it's not authentic? When you're here, your family, right? Show up there on Thanksgiving. I want the salad. I want the breadsticks. Dude, I love their salad. I want someone wearing a really unattractive uniform. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the last thing that I wanted to talk about was just like the the current iterations, but I also wanted to talk about how long Japan held on to loving music. Because if you think about it, Japan has a very like, I, I can't say this about everybody, but like traditionally, Japan's culture is very like Zen based. And Zen is a lot of repetition and a lot of um, just thinking about the bigger picture rather than the individualistic. So the the problems that a lot of people had with Muzak here, they it just didn't exist there. So Muzak was a thing until fairly recently. I wanted to say the early 2000s is when people kind of stopped liking Muzak in Japan, but it was still going on strong there. And again, it's like the idea of repetition. I mean, if you think about it, pretty much all Japanese art forms are about repetition and about like creating a piece in yourself. And it's not about like, oh, I want to be super inspired to be my own person and to be independent. It's like the health of the culture and the group as a whole Mm -hmm. is more important than your individualistic needs. Yeah. So that's like exactly what music is, right? Exactly. Us being like an animal still, it makes sense to me Mm -hmm. that that is a way to have a successful social culture rather than a whole bunch of individualistic assholes like one to do their own thing. Like I can understand the benefit of both sides, but mm-hmm. like there has to be a happy medium. Yeah, I'm thinking about the quote you said in the beginning about like the Zen principle too about yeah. music. I just, I thought that was really interesting. Like I thought about my own listening habits throughout this and thinking about the fact that when I want to work, I'll put on lo-fi or chill wave totally, or me too. like random ambient noise. Like I want to be in a forest where there's a creek. Who doesn't? And it's not like, you know, background music was created just for music. Like it had already existed. It was already a thing. People have always like sang while they worked. But yeah, I I just thought about like, A, how I could never survive 500 years ago without my ambient music. I'm sure I'd figure it out eventually. 
but also how ambient music now is like set up to sound like it came from the, you know, 60s, 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. even though we have such better technology just on like a normal consumer based laptop computer. Like we have the ability to make very high tech, sleek music and people are actually trying to make music that sounds like it was, you know, played in a Kmart in 1983. Weird. It is weird. Even though we love to make fun of music, we love to make fun of elevator music, we are still currently listening and enjoying elevator music, music, whatever you want to call it. Like it's just really, it's fascinating when you look at your own habits and you see that a thing that you've made enormous amounts of fun of is a thing that you enjoy almost every single day in some way or another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But also it it kind of makes you think like it is so pervasive now that you don't even notice when there's background music on in a store. Anytime I go to a grocery store, I become aware at some point that there's music playing, but then I don't know if it started when I noticed. Or (laughs) if it's been on all along. Or if it's been on the whole time. Yeah, does Target have music on? I don't know. Now I'm going to really start thinking about it when I go into places being like, is there music? Talking to people like, do you hear music? I'm like, no, go away. <laughs> like, okay, so it's not just me. Step away, ma'am. <laughs> We're scared. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing now thinking about like my listening habits, thinking about how little I notice when there's music played mm-hmm. in public places because it's just a thing that I expect to hear. So my brain is like, this doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Buy more wine. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's that's all I had for you as far as uh, music. I thought it was really interesting. Oh, yeah. Super interesting. At the end of the episode, you should play like 20 minutes of music. Just music. It's just like a 15-minute episode of us talking and then 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Troll. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a, a good amount of music that I have chosen to add Yay. to this to this program. For and your also listening to, pleasure. To, uh, to the blog which you should also give some love because we do full show notes on everything there. So I will have like actual names for people (laughs) and (laughs) they will be accurate to some degree. Um, There will be quotes and links and all sorts of stuff. So you can, if you really want to get into the deep dive with us and you really want to like make sure that we're saying people's names properly, (laughs) you should should go to iRedAThing.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what you're doing next time? Yeah, I'm going to be speaking about lobotomies and other ways that um, women have been unfairly treated in mental health. Oh my but mostly God. lobotomies because that stuff is like kind of heavy. All and of lobotomies heavy. like not. <laughs> Just a, you know, light lobotomy. <laughs> I really don't know anything about lobotomies other than I've seen movies where they will show that they're about to go through the eyeball. And that is just about the worst thing I can imagine. It's so yucky. It's horrifying. Get ready. Well, it's going to be a real light, uplifting listen. Oh, yeah. So smash that unsubscribe. (laughs) (laughs) Like us, please. You can find out more about us, like I said, on iReadAThing.com. And you should absolutely... Subscribe and rate us if you so choose. We really appreciate people giving us ratings on our Apple podcast page. What else? Oh, yeah. You can find us at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Our Instagram is I Read a Thing Podcast. We're, we're going to start working a little bit harder on our Instagram. We are. going to actually start planning things for it so that you will get updates ahead of time on some of our upcoming shows. Mm-hmm. And you'll be in the know. Candid photos like, of us in the story. <laughs> of me, just me. <laughs> It'll just be Emma because I don't do photos. <laughs> I only do hour and a half long recordings of myself. A photo is too invasive, too personal. It's just too personal. Yeah. It's too editable. I want people to really be able to see me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that's it for us today. And we hope that you come back and see us for our uplifting and amazingly hilarious lobotomy episode. See you next time. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. (laughs) Hey! <laughs>